0: After all, it's an inevitable part of life, and I'm sorry to break it to you and start on a cheery note for this episode, but every single one of you out there listening to this show right now will one day be dead. For some people, the fear of dying is so great that they can be considered thanatophobes, suffering from an intense fear of death and the dying process. For most people, it's a nagging inevitability that, once happened, doesn't bear much thinking about, but what if one day you went in for the big sleep but then found yourself coming to, surrounded by the claustrophobic walls of a silk lined coffin with no way to get out? Today on Macabre London, we uncover the many stories of people buried alive in Victorian cemeteries. Mm. Welcome back to another episode of Macabre London. I'm Nikki Druce, your host with a silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy back streets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want to see more episodes where we deep dive into some lesser known historic tales from London's past, and in fact all over the world, then please don't forget to subscribe or follow so you never miss a new episode. If you aren't new here and you regularly enjoy the show and want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. There's loads of bonus content over there, including my monthly show Gin and Ghost Stories, where I drink gin and tell ghost stories, and lots of other fun spooky bonus bits and bobs too. This month's tale is actually fairly similar to this episode. It's lots of little tidbits of weird London stories. And if you love those kind of compilation episodes with lots of short tales, you're gonna love it. The thought of waking up in the pitch black and reaching out to find you're trapped inside a tiny box is absolutely terrifying. And I'm not talking about London studio flats with dodgy lighting. I'm talking about being buried alive. Back before the medical advancements we now rely upon in the modern day, the methods for telling if a body was in fact a corpse were very wishy-washy. Of course, there were the obvious methods, some of which still apply today, such as checking for breathing and a heartbeat, and other less common tests such as pinching the body, or in a case of better injured than dead, putting a hot iron on the sole of the foot to see if they woke up screaming. In the case of sailors out at sea, before they were tossed overboard, they were sewn into their hammocks, with the final stitch being through their nostril or septum. As it was common for sailors to try and flee ships by being thrown overboard, this final test would definitely elicit a response if the person happened to be faking. Now, being someone who has both nostrils and a septum piercing, I can attest that they definitely make your eyes water, and there's no hiding that, so it's a foolproof plan. However, I also feel being thrown into the sea, sewn into a canvas burial shroud, also may not end well, but desperate times and all that. Anyway, the rudimentary checks for death were as basic as a white girl in Ugg boots drinking a pumpkin spice latte, and as you can imagine, this led to many people being pronounced dead when they very much weren't. One of the main factors was a lack of understanding of the signs of death, which made it difficult for doctors and other medical professionals to determine whether a person was truly dead. For example, some medical conditions, such as catalepsy, could cause a person's vital signs to slow to the point where they appeared dead, but then they would recover spontaneously, possibly causing the death of the mortuary workers at the same time. In other cases, people who had suffered from drowning, hypothermia, or other conditions that caused their heart rate to slow down or stop, might appear to be dead, but could still be revived with prompt medical attention. And for many years, the technology just didn't exist to give a 100% guaranteed confirmation of expiration. This lack of accurate and definitive tests meant that, sadly, a lot of people went to their graves a little early. Of course, it's hard to estimate a number as many people, having been buried alive, went on to die underground with no one ever knowing their fate. But occasionally there would be the odd early interment discovered, usually after it was too late. By 1986, I obviously meant to say 1886 here and... um not 1986. I'm a child of the 80s, leave me alone. The problem had become so bad that the London Association for the Prevention of Premature Burial, or the LAPPB for short, was set up in hopes that they could bring an end to this ghastly fear. Co-founded by William Tebb, a social reformer and, as it turns out, a staunch anti-vaxxer, and Walter Hadwin, a GP, chemist, anti-vivisectionist and also staunch anti-vaxxer. As we've found many times on this show, people are complex beings with both good and bad elements, particularly in the Victorian times where people were seemingly a real mishmash of juxtaposing opinions. Anyway, they fought for proper checks to be carried out upon people after they had seemingly passed away, as there had never been a requirement for a doctor to confirm death, or the causes of death. This led to all sorts of complications, as people were just certifying people as dead without any official certification or checks carried out. Of course, the majority of people probably weren't saying people were dead for nefarious reasons, but... It was a loophole in the system, and one that could easily be exploited for financial gain, or even to get away with murder. The LAPPB campaigned for improvements in death certification, and also came up with many ideas for safety coffins, which if someone did find themselves buried underground prematurely, they would be able to make themselves known and be rescued. The most simplistic version of this was a cord which ran inside the coffin through a hole which then connected to a bell above ground. In the event that the interred found themselves underground before their time, they could simply pull the cord, alert anyone in the graveyard to their accidental burial, and be unearthed in time to make it home for tea. Now, I don't know about you, but the thought of hearing a solitary little bell ringing in a churchyard just fills me with all sorts of dread. It's just inherently very creepy. Of course, there were more complex designs as well, as with a lot of things, people always have to overcomplicate the most simple of designs for some reason, and safety coffins were no different. This led to perhaps the worst job ever to have been invented, which was that of a coffin sniffer. One such over-engineered contraption required a trumpet-like tube inserted into a coffin, which ran from the coffin to the surface. The contraption created required vicars, sextons or gravediggers to go to the tube, take a big deep inhale and if the body smelt like it was decomposing then things were going correctly and the coffin could be left alone. If after a few days the smell didn't make you instantly gag or you know pass out from the noxious fumes the coffin would be exhumed. For those that didn't want to inhale too deeply, you could also listen to the pipe to see if any scuffling around could be heard or mumbling from below the earth. It also allowed a two-way conversation, just in case the person inside didn't happen to be dead. In Germany, one designer, Dr Adolf Gutsmuth, was so confident in his creation that he opted to be buried alive overnight and even took his evening meal via a tube placed in the coffin. He had soup, bratwurst, beer, and even dessert – a three-course meal, all served by a tube into a coffin, which will probably become London's next immersive dining experience. However, safety coffins weren't foolproof, and occasionally the odd false positive could be created. As bodies decomposed, they could move around and accidentally tug cords or set off other warning systems. Some people were exhumed to find that actually they were now a big swollen corpse and swiftly returned to the earth. A very simple coffin design was to simply have a glass panel built in so the face of the occupant could be observed. However, this simple design was prone to fogging as the body decomposed, which could make it look like a body was still alive. The first ever safety coffin was made for the thanatophobe Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick. Before he died in 1792, he designed an escapable coffin which had several safety features built in. He had a window installed to allow light in, and so he could be viewed inside his mausoleum by his loved ones an air tube which would provide a supply of fresh air, and a lock fitted to the coffin for which he had two keys. Instead of the casket being nailed down in a usual fashion, this lockable coffin gave him the opportunity to fling open the lid and climb out. But the ingenuity didn't end there. He had a third key sequestered in his pocket of his burial outfit, which was for the door of his tomb, allowing him to leave if he ever woke up. The safety precautions didn't need to be used, however, as he was well and truly dead by the time he was entombed. Safety coffins were something which only the rich could afford, and for most people, they were lucky if they received even a shroud to be buried in. During the many cholera outbreaks which London suffered in the 1800s, which saw the biggest total loss of life being over 600 people in under a week, the city struggled to bury them all. The city's churchyards were overpacked, full of burkers who stole bodies and sold them to medical professionals for dissection. From the readily available fresh buried dead, there was money to be made. Teeth would be ripped out and sold on separately to dentists, who would make false teeth from them to sell to the upper classes, who didn't like the other offerings of porcelain or wooden teeth. Their hair would be cut and sold to wig makers, if it was in good condition, and any clothes or jewellery were pawned. If it so happened that a corpse was in a bad state overall, but there were some parts which were less decomposed than others, then limbs would be cut off, placed in a bag, and taken to a medical school where they could get £1 a bag for them, which would be around £170 in today's money. One gang of body part extractors even took advantage of the battlefields of the Peninsular War where they systematically went from fallen soldier to fallen soldier, ripping out teeth. When they returned, they sold their bounty for over £300, which would have been worth a whopping £30,000 in today's money. As the population grew in London, the problem of the city's overcrowded churchyards became more prevalent, leading to concerns about the spread of disease from decaying corpses. The stench of death in the city was so great at times that people began to believe that just the smell alone, which they refer to as miasma, was making them unwell. To address these issues, the British government passed a series of acts in the mid-19th century aimed at reforming burial practices. One of the most significant of these was the Metropolitan Interments Act of 1850, which applied to the London metropolitan area and its surrounding suburbs. The Metropolitan Interments Act established a series of regulations for the burial of the dead in the fit-to-bursting cemeteries. Under the new law, it became illegal to bury bodies within the city's limits, except in specially designated burial grounds which had room for more bodies. The Act also required the appointment of a burial board in each parish to manage and regulate the use of burial grounds. The Act had several other important provisions. It required that all burials had to be recorded in a register and that all new graves should be dug to a minimum depth of six feet to prevent the spread of disease and also any body parts reappearing. It also prohibited the reuse of graves within certain timeframes and mandated that coffins be made of a specified thickness of wood or metal to prevent them from collapsing. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The Metropolitan Interments Act was a significant step forward in the regulation of burial practices in Victorian England, and set the stage for further reforms in the years that followed. It helped to establish the modern cemetery system in Britain, and contributed to the creation of the Garden Cemetery Movement, which emphasised the importance of green space and park-like settings in burial grounds. This led to the posthumously named Magnificent Seven Cemeteries, around what once were the suburbs of London, being created. Brompton, Highgate, Nunhead, Tower Hamlets, Kensal Green, Abney Park and West Norwood. And yes, there will be a test after this episode just to check that you were listening. Pair that with the London Necropolis Railway being created, which took the deceased out to Brookwood Cemetery, which still remains the largest cemetery in the whole of the UK, the plan to rid the city, which was full to the brim of corpses, was coming together. Edwin Chadwick, a social reformer and public health advocate, was instrumental in the passage of several important public health acts during the Victorian era, including the Metropolitan Interments Act and the Public Health Act. Chadwick was a strong proponent of the sanitary benefits of cemeteries and played a significant role in shaping the public debate around burial reform. Basically, he was the go-to guy for all things stinky, gross and deadly, as he loved to survey them all. However, before all of these newfangled legislations and laws were brought in, in the UK, it wasn't required for a doctor to certify death, This led to a lot of problems and, as I said earlier, people taking advantage of the lack of cheques for financial gain. One poor man who found himself six feet under earlier than expected was Lawrence Cawthorne. On the 21st of June, 1661, people were alarmed when they heard what sounded like muffled screams coming from the nearby churchyard. Lawrence, who was a butcher at St Nicholas Shambles in Newgate Market, had been renting a room from a landlady named Mrs Cook in Pincock Lane. After heading to bed that evening, he told Mrs Cook's husband, William, that he would be getting up early the next day, as he had many lambs and pigs to slaughter before the next market day, and so William said he would be sure to arrange some breakfast for him before he left. The next morning, at around 6am, when Lawrence didn't arrive for breakfast, William went to investigate thinking that he had maybe overslept. He knocked politely on his door, but didn't hear any stirring coming from Lawrence, so he tried once more, but louder, and still his attempt went unregistered. William tried the door to the room to go and shake Lawrence awake, but it happened to be bolted. He retreated downstairs and relayed the situation to his wife, and she said that they should leave it a little while, just in case he was getting dressed. As time ticked by, and now 7am, there was still no sign of Lawrence, and so William decided there was no other option but to break down the door. He went to find the local blacksmith, who aided him in breaking through the bolt. Once inside the room, Lawrence was observed as being unresponsive. At least this was the story Mr. and Mrs. Cook would go on to tell the authorities. However, others in the room said that when his name was called, Lawrence's eyes flickered open. The cooks wasted no time in stripping the young Lawrence and putting him back in bed. As they weren't sure if he was drunk, had distemper or some other kind of illness, they lay him out to recover. They then proceeded to leave him in bed for the rest of the day, asking other people who lived in the immediate vicinity to pop round and have a look at him to see if they could work out what was wrong with him. Again, we have to remember that this was a time before there were many physicians and their services were reserved for those who could afford them, which definitely wouldn't have been the cooks. And they definitely wouldn't have paid for a lodger to be seen by a doctor, even if they could access one. What they did have, though, were people known as searchers. The cooks eventually concluded that Lawrence was dead, and so they sent for the searchers, which were basically the Restoration-era equivalent of poking at a dead body with a stick. Searchers were usually women employed by the parish to confirm deaths, and to begin the process of arranging a burial within their respective churchyard. Being a searcher was an odd profession, as it was a pay-per-corpse arrangement, as you got paid for every corpse you certified as dead. As you can imagine, this meant that giving a positive confirmation of death was a better outcome for those involved, and this profession, which went on between the mid-1500s through to the mid-1800s, must have been responsible for sending many people to an early grave. This profession was given to the most undesirable demographic out there, which was old women. And this gave people an excuse to push them out to live on the outskirts, to live with other undesirable professionals such as executioners. The uniform required searchers to also carry a white stick with them so they could be identified as people to stay away from due to their contact with the sick, dying and dead. They were basically the harbingers of death and no respecting town wanted them living near its residence. As the profession also had a likelihood of death as an occupational hazard, it also meant that older women could be systematically picked off using a socially enforced job route, as they were unemployable elsewhere. The misogyny is real. Anyway, back to Lawrence. He was confirmed dead by a searcher, giving Quincy as his cause of death. Quinsy is still a term used nowadays by doctors for a severe tonsil infection, but in this case the searcher said it had caused Lawrence's throat to close over, causing him to die from asphyxiation. With the death having been confirmed, Mr and Mrs Cook went to the churchyard to agree the burial. But, of course, by this time, word had spread of Lawrence's passing, and so people came forward to claim their debts owed before his assumed corpse was even cold. The victualler, a.k.a. the off-license, said he was indebted to them, and they had the receipts to prove it. So Mrs Cook tried to argue with them that she needed all the money for the burial. The victualler settled for a lesser payment and donated the rest to the burial costs. Mrs Cook told the vicar that she was owed rent by Lawrence, but she couldn't prove it as she didn't want to show her records, which would have more than likely shown she was paid up. She argued and said she wouldn't pay for his burial as she would be out of pocket, and so Lawrence was given a pauper's send-off. The village all chipped in to bury him and carried his coffin to the grave. At the time, one of the pallbearers reported that they felt the weight of the body move in the coffin, but they just put this down to the untrained skill of those now having to bury Lawrence in such a rushed fashion. Lawrence was buried on the same day he died, which was fairly unusual as most corpses were left out at least 24 hours for anyone who wanted to pay their respects. As it turns out, The body was buried in a relatively shallow grave at just under a foot deep, and over the weekend, strange noises were said to have been heard emanating from the graveyard at Christchurch. Shrieks and cries were heard, but it took a few days for anyone to do anything about it, and it was too late by the time they did. The coffin seemed to have shifted in the ground, and the sexton dug the casket back up, fearing the worst. They cracked open the lid and were horrified to see Lawrence had torn through his burial shroud. His nails were full of soil, his face bruised, his eyes swollen, and a terrified expression was on his face. One onlooker said that he'd even suffered a large head wound, perhaps from where he'd been trying to smash his way out of the coffin. The poor man had died in abject terror at his untimely entombment and tried to claw his way out without success. Once Lawrence's corpse had literally been uncovered, both Mr and Mrs Cook were arrested and taken to Newgate Jail to be charged with the forced burial, which Mrs Cook had been so keen on, thinking the pair had conspired to drug Lawrence so they could make off with his meagre possessions. Now, as records for executions back then weren't the best, I can't find if William and the unnamed Mrs Cook hanged for their crimes, but It was the 1600s and people were hanged for less. Nowadays, the credibility of this story has been questioned as to its legitimacy as the records are so scant. But, I don't know, it sounds a little too detailed and far-fetched to make it up. Let me know what you think. Is it true or do you think it's just a fable story? Eventually, as time passed, science progressed to a place where medical tests were enhanced, and we nowadays have so many ways to test for death, including machines which do the hard work for us, such as heart monitors, and so the likelihood of being buried alive is very unlikely. However, that doesn't stop people from still being terrified of it as a possibility. Even in the mid-90s, fears around premature burial were still fairly common, and so a designer, Fabrizio Cazzelli, designed the modern safety coffin. His design included an intercom, a loud emergency alarm, a torch and even breathing apparatus. The coffin could also be monitored by those above ground as it fed back to a heart monitor to the loved ones just to prove that there were no signs of life and it also contained a defibrillator, just in case the occupant sprang back into life, but then flickered out again. So now comes the important question, did the safety coffin ever save someone? And the answer is, no. There has never been a reported case of a safety coffin saving someone's life, and the occupants of them have remained dead. The false hope of a safety coffin, and any kind of posthumous death test, is very much a last-ditch attempt at trying to evade the finality of death, but unfortunately, it's an inevitable part of living, and life is a terminal illness. Before the last 100 years, the fear of being buried alive was cemented in some truth that it could potentially happen. Chances are the risk was more than likely exaggerated in the press and of course the thought of the act itself is incredibly visceral and invokes deep-seated fear within even those with the toughest of resolves. Nowadays, it's very unlikely that being buried alive would even be a possibility and given the techniques used for embalming people, which granted is more common in America than anywhere else in the world, you'd never survive the process anyway. A post-mortem would definitely finish you off, and if you opt for the cremation route, at least it would be quick, but probably not painless. The stories I've told you today may just be horrifying, but please don't dwell on it too much. After all, you can save that for when you wake up in your coffin, as what else are you going to do with all that spare time? joining me for this episode i hope i haven't given you too many nightmares or a newfound fear either i also have a few more cemetery tales up my sleeve so if you like this one and you'd like me to cover a few more tales of ghoulish graveyards then please do let me know and leave me a comment and a thumbs up on youtube or a rating on your podcast provider if you're new around here and you've not yet subscribed i'd love for you to join the ghoul gang so you stay up to date every time i release a new episode Also, if you do like the show and you'd like to support what I make to make sure it continues, then why not consider becoming a patron like these amazing top tier legendary executive Patreon producers, Amy, Christina, Christoph, Jess, Kate, Kevin, Mary, Rose, Sally, Sam, Sarah, Teresa, Terry, V, and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. There are also more links like one-off donation links and my Amazon wishlist, so please check out the support me section in the show notes for more ways to help me in continuing to bring you the haunted history we both love. All support is 100% integral for me being able to continue making the show, and thanks from the very bottom of my heart for even considering supporting me. You're the best. And also, don't forget to check out my merch as well, which is at macabrelondon-shop.fourthwall.com. Also, if you want a cheeky little discount of merch, sign up to Patreon and £5 and up tiers get a nice fat discount, which definitely makes it worth your while, and you get access to all the lovely bonus content on Patreon too. It's a win-win. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, remember to stay spooky, and I'll see you ghouls next time. <laughs>